Today's episode is brought to you by Stream by Mosaic, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free two-week trial on their website at www.streamrg.com. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.com using the promo code MICROCAP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker-dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft, that's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T, and you're listening to episode 206. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the Microcap message. Special thank you to our sponsors for today's episode, Stream by Mosaic, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free two-week trial on their website at www.streamrg.com. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.com using the promo code MICROCAP. And Quarter, whose mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. Visit your app store of choice to try it out. And that's Q-U-A-R-T-R, Quarter. I'd like to start off today's episode by wishing everybody a very happy holidays. Uh, Once again, this has been a crazy year, uh, just in the world, in the markets, all over the place. So I hope you know you you have a great couple days relaxing. Let's get fat. Let's watch a couple movies. And please, please be safe. Uh, Omicron's going a little nuts right now. Um, so just look after your family. Look after yourselves. Um, you know, let's let's cold out. Let's stay inside. Let's hang out. But uh, either way, just please be safe. Have fun. Relax. And let's get after in 2022. And, and again, thank you so much for your listenership and your support over the years. It really, it really means a lot to me. And uh, I'm excited for you know, everything that we have uh, ahead of us here. You know, e- even though we'll be taking the next uh, few days to relax and reflect a little bit, looking ahead to 2022, uh, we're excited to host our first in-person event in nearly three years. The Planet Microcap Showcase is back in Las Vegas on May 3rd through the 5th, 2022 at Bally's Hotel and Casino. It's time to see each other. It's time to network in person. Let's make it all happen in the entertainment and business capital of the world. For more information, please go to www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vegas. Now for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Michael Green. He is the portfolio manager and chief strategist at Simplify Asset Management and better known as at ProfPlum99 on Twitter. This interview has been a few months in the making and I think the timing of our chat couldn't be better. Michael is a renowned expert on the intersection of economics, markets, regulation, and politics, and we discuss it all. Well, as much as we could in about an hour, but we do cover a lot. So from China, crypto, ETFs, passive investing, we chat about it all. And for all our microcap diehards out there, I think you'll especially enjoy hearing about Michael's experience working at Royce & Associates. So thank you again for tuning in to episode 206 of the Planet Microcap podcast. And please enjoy my conversation with Michael Green. This episode is brought to you by Stream by Mosaic. You can find them at www.streamrg.com. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.com. Stream is an expert interview transcript library that is starting to become an integral part to investors' research process. They have a number of interviews on a wide variety of companies, including TMT, consumers, industrials, real estate, and more. Stream provides over 300 expert interviews per week, and 70% of their experts are found exclusively on Stream. 
Stream was built by Mosaic and unlike any other transcript libraries, Stream integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Stream's community of experts and thought leaders partner with Stream to build their professional brands and expand their industry influence. Right now, there are approximately 8,500 plus call transcripts available. For more information, please visit www.streamrg.com. Welcome back, everybody, to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And joining me today, my guest, uh, this has been a, a few months in the making, and I'm so excited that he's joining me here today. Uh, it is Michael Green. He is the Portfolio Manager and Chief Strategist at Simplify Asset Management. Michael, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing well. Thank you, Bobby. Great to have you on. You know, look, uh, this is our first time having a conversation together. So I know you've done a number of podcasts and you and you do a lot of videos for Simplify's YouTube channel as well. But, you know, for those who may not be following you or know of you, you know, where did your passion for investing begin? And, and we'll go from there. Well, my passion for investing began, I mean, fairly early. I've told the story elsewhere where I stayed home sick from school to watch the crash of 87, right? And so like, I was very early at a young age into computers, into numbers analysis, financial analysis, et cetera, um, recognized that there was this dynamic called the stock market that my parents were saving in or bonds that my parents were saving in, um, not particularly successfully, by the way, but uh, it was you know fun to understand that. And I remember digging through my dad's drawers and finding worthless stock certificates of various microcaps that he had invested in in the 1980s and you know probably... Uh, I don't remember the exact tickers, but I know that they were all worthless by the time I looked at them you in gotta, the early 80s. You, you got to frame those. They're still around somewhere. They, know, did, they, they didn't they, find they, their they, way to the fire heap already. Yeah, they found their way to the fire heap, unfortunately. But um, <laughs> they, they would have been, been excellent to, to, to have as framing. But you know, this is back in the day where, where if you participated in an early issue, you actually received the physical share certificates that you then had to present to your broker so that they could be held in street name off of the pink sheets. Um, you know, so so early interest in it um, translated to going to the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business as an undergrad in 1988. I actually came out of that recognizing that I wanted to spend time not so much focused on the financial side because I discovered I'd started a PhD in finance and, and recognized that ultimately it was the same what felt to me misplaced theories of valuation, et cetera, that played all the way through. There was no like secret gate that you got to once you, you passed the MBA or the PhD level. And so it was felt very tired to me as we were still basically studying the efficient market hypothesis, just introducing things like arbitrage pricing theory, the Fama French factor models, et cetera. All of those had, had you know, just begun to emerge and were really not into the academic literature yet. And so the opportunity to be a practitioner was far more important to me. Uh, went into management consulting, and then ironically built an expertise within management consulting, valuing business, business units from a strategic planning purpose for mergers and acquisitions. Uh, that led to me starting a software company focused on valuation of those types of assets. In 1996, Mitch Julis of Canyon Partners actually reached out to us and said, hey, I discovered your tools. Could you link them to the public equity databases and create a product that we could use for valuing equities in the public equity markets? That became the focus of the software company, which we sold in 1999. Uh, and then ultimately, it was finally sold in 2000 to, to a firm you've heard of, Credit Suisse. Um, and it's still used as part of their quantitative tools in, in their reports. It's referred to as the Holt system. Um, that created the opportunity for me to transition to the buy side. And I actually started in the small cap value. And um, ultimately, as we were talking about before, I was a co-manager on the Royce Microcap Fund uh, from 2003 to 2006. And so have some familiarity and experience in, in, in your area of the world. But you know where my investment process has changed is moving away from focusing on individual companies and the strategies and opportunities that they each individually have to a much more what's referred to as a global macro framework um, with a particular focus on the ideas of market structure. And so my investment style is always trying to figure out who is being forced to do something, right? And is there an opportunity that is created by somebody who is either a forced seller or a forced buyer in one form or another and, and identifying 
what tools and instruments would allow me to take the best risk reward trade associated with that. And that can be in equities, that can be in fixed income, that can be in currency, et cetera. Um, for Simplify, I'm taking advantage of a change that was introduced in 2020 that led to the launch of our firm. And so Simplify's claim to fame is basically taking traditional beta exposures like a US equity exposure and then applying a derivative overlay, which is really what I'm known for in the space, um, that allows us to modify that return, either making it less risky or actually introducing the prospect of additional return in a runaway market like we've had in the last year. And so products that we offer, um, like our SPD product, which is a downside protection product, have kind of become the flagship as people recognize that there's lots of weird things that are happening in markets. You ultimately have to participate in kind of the TINA framework um, but there's also increased risk of significant and aggressive drawdowns. And this is, as this is happening, as the boomers in particular are later and later in life, more and more assets need to be in equities, but are also terrified of being in them. And so we, we work to modify the return profiles for advisors and clients. Very good. All right. So there's many different rabbit holes we're going to go down there. So uh, thank you for all that. Um, but to start off, let's. I want to start off with. Um, obviously, look, you're on a microcap podcast. I think everybody would would call for my head if I didn't ask you about your experience working at, with Chuck Royce uh, during 2003, 2006. So, love to hear about that experience and maybe some of the lessons learned and what inspired you from taking more of an. I don't want to say, I don't want to get into a whole active versus passive thing. We'll probably get into that a little bit later, but there's almost some of that in there. It seems like going from working at a shop with Chuck Royce and then now doing what you're doing today. So love to hear about those experiences. Well, so, so first of all, working with Chuck um, and also Whitney George, who was the COO, CIO at the time, um, was just an extraordinary experience, right? So Royce was the second largest small cap and micro cap investor investment firm behind only Fidelity. Um, unlike Fidelity, which had you know legions of analysts, Royce was a PM-only structure. So everyone that was there had five years minimum investment experience and was functioning as either an assistant PM, co-PM, or PM on a fund. Um, we also had the unique feature, and, and this was certainly true for the microcap fund, where not only was it available in mutual fund form, but it was available in closed uh, closed-end fund form. And closed-end funds are a remarkably attractive vehicle for investing, right? They give you the ability to have a relatively stable asset base um, that prevents you from having to make choices tied primarily to the flows of money either coming into your fund or leaving your fund. And so that was a real luxury within the small cap space. Um, where I would argue Chuck is, it was so unique. First of all, he has, you know, an absolute steel trap mind, right? So, you know, you would ask him a question about something that he hadn't seen for two or three years and discover that he had actually been quietly following it in the background, um, you know, was was aware of the management team. Like he basically had an encyclopedic knowledge of the companies. His approach was a super, super interesting one, which was basically to treat small cap stocks as options, right? Now he might not have declared it that way. And this is my analysis of his gameplay. But his criteria was always, does the company have cash? Does the company have you know, debt that's going to require it to hit the refinancing switch at some point in, in the, the reasonably near future? If In particular, he had basically an assets to liabilities framework um, or a liabilities uh, uh, framework where if the company needed to tap capital markets, he was just not interested in it, right? And what that did was it creates equities. If you think about you know, a put call parity or risk neutral arbitrage type, type dynamic, an equity is you know, equal to a call minus a put plus the present value of dividends plus the present value of the strike price, right? So that's just risk neutral arbitrage for formulation. If you have a company that has cash and has no debt and is profitable, et cetera, it's effectively an infinitely lived option. Right now, that becomes actually a really valuable component when you think about the return profile for small caps, which is the source of the excess return for small companies are those companies that make the transition to being large companies. And that can be a combination of you know, absolute brilliance of the management team and identification of a TAM or being in the right place at the right time. Right? And to be in the right place at the right time, it helps to have a long life associated with that trade. Um, and so that was always Chuck's approach. And I, I think it's particularly important. I would encourage people who are looking within the microcap space to echo that type of dynamic 
always focus on a degree of quality, always be aware that what you're buying into a small caps is effectively a hope and a dream that it's going to transition to being a much larger company. The prospect of actively trading things like, like micro caps, you know, for 15% gains or 20% gains, like the odds are just so against you. It's really, really hard. You don't have the information content that everybody else has, that the other players in the game will have. Um, and the other thing that has changed, and this is, you know, where the, the world changed underneath Chuck, um, has been the rise of products like the Vanguard Total Market Index, right? Which increasingly pull things out of the microcap space. Once they move into Vanguard's orbit, their behavior becomes radically different, right? And so, you know, one name that I use as an example for that all the time um, is, and I have no position in it or anything else, but if you pull up DYAI, dyadic, uh, is a you know, uh, micro cap that entered into the Vanguard total market index, right? If you pull up the chart, you can see exactly where it entered the Vanguard indices, right? Like it just got lifted out. And so anyone who was following this and thinking that there was some fundamental signal or anything like this is just pure index arbitrage. It's the Tesla trade writ large in the small cap space, right? That I think is, has proven to be somewhat fatal for active small cap and micro cap stock pickers, right? Because the only prospect of continuous flows into the business or something that is transitioning into that total market index. I'd like to take a quick second to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Quarter. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world, straight from your pocket for no cost. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. The first step on this journey is to let you, the user, interact with the company's content while you're listening. Visit your app store of choice and try it out today by searching for Quarter, and that's Q-U-A-R-T-R. Now back to the show. It's so funny you brought up that name. I, I feel like I remember seeing when that actually happened too. So that was interesting you brought up that name too. Um, this might be a silly question, but I, I, I figured I'd ask. I mean, were you were you recruited to work there or did you notice at the time like, hey, there might be an opportunity. I mean, this is coming out of the, the dot-com bust. You yeah. know, there's a lot of potential fallen angels at that time and also new businesses. So, I mean, did you actively go and look to work at a buy-side shop that focused on small micros or we are like, okay, there's an opportunity that came up. I, I got to take it. Um, so in 99, I actually made a choice to go into small cap value, recognizing that the dot-com cycle had created a dynamic of neglect in small cap value, right? Now that's very different than what's happened now. And I've spoken elsewhere about how the dot-com bubble was different than this market today, right? So the structure of the indices was different prior to 2003, 2004. They were constructed on a market cap weighted basis as compared to a float weighted basis. What that meant was that companies that had relatively recently IPO'd with a small fraction of their shares publicly traded were receiving bids that were associated with the full float as compared to just the subset of the float, right? That created conditions for huge pops and huge outperformance in many of the small cap growth names that were part of the technology cycle. And that ultimately pulled capital away from the tired, stayed old economy stocks. And so you had housing stocks trading at half of book value right ahead of the biggest housing bubble that we've seen, right? Or boom in housing that we've seen, you know, declined to fully label it a bubble. Um, the same thing was true for industrial companies, commodity oriented companies, et cetera, right? Effectively, the construction of the indices had pulled capital away from small cap value. This time around, it's a little different. Basically, everything has been inflated, right? As long as you are in that Vanguard small cap index, you are going to get pulled upwards by the dynamics of flows. Um, but it's harder for the smaller companies because they have the secondary impact of guys like Chuck Royce and others getting fired, right? Um, so their underperformance is creating conditions where their favored securities are effectively being sold by the, the Royce and Associates, and I'm not picking on Royce, by the way, this is true for everybody, right? Um, being sold by the active stock pickers who are being fired and, and to a certain extent, they're being replaced by the buying that's coming from, from Vanguard, right? So it is a different dynamic. I had chosen to go into small cap value. And then um, after 
showing good performances recruited out of the firm that I had joined in 1999 to go to Royce. Got it. So, I mean, you touched on this already a little bit, but in, in your opinion, since leaving 2006, how, how has the small microcap game really changed? I mean, you mentioned obviously Vanguard and, and you know, a number of ETFs that have been launched, but how else has it changed? Well, I think that there's been two big dynamics that are that are associated with it. One is in 2006, there was a change um, in the um, the 401k regulations called the Pension Protection Act. Historically, um, mutual fund firms would compete to get into platforms like 401ks or wealth management platforms, and that would become a source of distribution. Right? You would offer the Royce Microcap Fund, or you would. Or, you would um, offer the the Royce Select funds, which is what I managed. Um, the Royce Low Price Fund was another one I was a co-manager on. So those products would be marketed to employees, to wealth management platforms, etc. Um, following the 2006 Pension Protection Act, the most important market there, the 401k market, changed to what's called a qualified default investment alternative market where an HR manager basically selected a default investment for most participants, and then they had to actively select to leave that. Um, when that happened, it basically killed the active manager space, right? That was further exacerbated in 2016 with what's called um, uh, the fiduciary rule that further made companies liable for making active manager selections within platforms, um, and same was true for RIAs, um, if they selected an active manager for a client portfolio and that fund underperformed, they could become liable not only for the excess fees, but also the out, the underperformance, right? So effectively putting it back into almost a defined benefit type plan, which is what everybody had tried to avoid with 401ks. Fundamentally, what that's meant is, is that the active manager space has had no inflows for, you know, give or take 15 years, right? It's just continuous outflows as their client base ages and ages out of equity ownership there's nobody to replace them, right? So their assets have been able to remain largely stable because of price appreciation um, in the markets, but there's been no growth in the space. And I think that's really critical to understand for people that there's just, there is no active space, particularly in small equities, because it's just been eviscerated. I think, what, what would you say to some, like, because I've had a number, you know, again, microcap show, small microcap, Microcap show. You know, I've had a number of managers on here that, you know, are, are quite active. You know, they're out there, they're raising money. Some of them have had to close up. You know, maybe it's some of that is symptomatic of the markets just having, you know, ballooned or for, for lack of a better term. You know, so what would you say to them that, you know, are quote unquote active active managers in the space uh, to, to that comment? You know, would, would you say that it's a, it might be a symptom of the, how the market's performing right now, or is it just, I don't know. I'm curious your opinion on that. No, I mean, look, there are still, you know, guys driving uh, carriages around Central Park with, with a horse and buggy, right? I mean, you know, that exists and will continue to exist. And there will always be people that try to play hard games, but the game has changed. It is a much harder game, not because your competition has gotten better in terms of selecting stocks, but more that the avenues for distribution have collapsed, right? Um, it, you know, and it has nothing to do with their skill or their performance or anything else, um, it, at least not in the simplest form. It's just the regulatory environment changed under lobbying from Vanguard and others, and it's become far more difficult for active managers to succeed within the mutual fund space in particular. Hedge funds, you know, in the microcap space, if you can find somebody who's willing to throw you $100 million, yeah, you can, you know, create a very attractive business at one and a half and 15, right? Um, that's a hard business, right? You, you, you have to have the um, capacity to find people. You either, one, have to develop a track record, right? So you take all the risk of doing that on your own. Then once you've built the track record, not only do you have to maintain that track record, but you have to move from being a super scrappy, you know, guy who is buried in, you know, 10Ks and, and 10Qs to somebody who can adequately present their approach and their theories to a market that by and large treats it all as, yeah, you got lucky. All right. It's just, it's a hard, hard business. 
It's definitely hard. I, I absolutely. All right. So I, I want to get I want to get to your investing philosophy that you, you talked about at the beginning. How you, right now your focus is on global macro uh, flows and and you know looking for situations where folks are forced to buy, forced to sell. So I'd love to learn a little bit more about that. You know, uh, tell us you know a little bit more about what that means and what are some of the things that you look for. Well, so the simplest thing that I do is I, I'm, I'm always looking to the rules. If I believe that the dominant investor, the dominant marginal investor is an active manager who's forced to sell and a passive manager who is continuously receiving flows and therefore buying irregardless of price, I want to find the securities that are most affected in that framework, right? So if I can find something that Vanguard does not own, but is going to own, then that's a buy, right? If I can find something that is crowded with an existing Vanguard position and tons of devoted active managers who think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread and it carries low short interest and everything else, that actually tends to be a pretty good sell, right? You, you basically, everyone who could possibly buy in has already bought in. And the only way that it's going to continue to grow in terms of the incremental buyer is if those active managers that are already crowded in it put even more capital in, right? So like my ideal short is to find something that an active manager has bought way too much of and they are then facing redemptions. And that means they're forced to sell their best ideas, which means they are going to drive down their largest holdings relative to the rest of the market and create conditions under which they're just going to get fired even more, right? So like, it, it, you know, you, you play the players, not, you know, it, you play the game. You don't actually, you know, go back and study what other people have done before. The game as it is currently constructed is more about hunting the holders than it is about actually picking the stocks. So without naming names, because this isn't like a stock pitch show or anything like that, but what industries or sectors in particular have you been seeing, you know, these interesting plays that work both on both sides, on both where people are being forced to buy and being forced to sell, you know, what, what, what sectors or industries? Well, so the easiest space to look at right now would be something on the, on the selling side would be to look at the behavior of something like what's going on with Kathy Wood's portfolio at ARC Asset Management, right? Um, you know, there you have an investor who was effectively this cycle's poster child in the same way, you're not going to know the name, but Ryan Jacobs of the Jacob Internet Fund or uh, Munder Net Net Fund or you know any of the funds from the, the late 1990s that received huge inflows in the period from give or take 98 through 2001 and then faced continuous redemptions and outflows, right? So Kathy Wood basically was the 1.5 beta player against the Qs type stocks, right? The unprofitable technology, hope and a prayer sort of stuff that was uniquely suited to do well in a strong momentum environment, her flows into her vehicle then actually became the dominant feature in terms of her return profile. Um, and now you're seeing the opposite of that, right? As her, as her performance has suffered, she's beginning to see outflows. You're beginning to see the tax loss selling. She's becoming a forced seller of her own securities and the outflows are now actually the dominant driver. Um, now, with full dis disclosure, I actually think at, at this point, we're seeing a fair amount of crowdedness in that behavior. Um, you know, people are chasing after Kathy Wood's shorts or longs as shorts to the point that I think that they've probably become exposed. Um, but that would be a good example on the short side. On the long side, you know, the easiest one to the easiest ones to point to are the, the mega caps, right? So the actual structure of the indices are such that almost no active manager has the ability to run a concentrated enough portfolio to own an adequate quantity of Apple or Microsoft or the things that make up the S&P 500's largest components, the highest market cap names in the, in the indices. As a secondary feature, because the indices, again, are float-weighted or market cap-weighted is pretty darn close to actually the same now because we've eliminated that dynamic associated with insider holding, um, there's a mismatch in liquidity. Right. So liquidity does not scale with market cap. So when Vanguard shows up and tries to buy, you know, for every thousand dollars that comes into Vanguard, if they try to spend six dollars of it buying Microsoft and another or Apple and another five dollars buying Microsoft, I don't know what the exact numbers are off the top of my head. You know, the there is no seller who is capable of matching that demand. And so those names mechanically get forced up more rapidly than the smaller names in the indices. Um, 
And, you know, that structure, I don't see any reason that it's going to change in any meaningful way for an extended period of time. We'll, we'll certainly see profit taking as we come into January against some of the names that have done extraordinarily well. You know, we'll absolutely see a relief rally associated with the tax loss harvesting candidates that are currently being demolished. Um, that may create a bump for players like Kathy. It may create a bump for some of the crypto space. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't see any reason why those underlying features are going to change in any meaningful way going forward. You know, being being an expert in, in understanding market structure and what we're seeing right now, I, all right, I'm going to ask that time old CNBC Fox business question, I guess, of, I mean, I just love to hear your take on on all this. I mean, it's just the, the last, since March, 2020, this has been, uh, you know, I've been I've been doing this now, running a media company in small micro since 2011, and I mean, this is nothing like I've ever seen before. I don't know if I ever will see in my lifetime again. I mean, I'm sure that markets are always cyclical, and I'm sure we'll see some stuff like that. But I mean, in, in as a student of market structure and what's been going on, I mean, do you just sit there like a kid in a candy store because it's interesting, or are you just like what? Or are you are you just banging your head against the wall? Like, why is why is what's happening happening? No, so the, so that's actually you know the thing that makes me most zen is I think I understand what's happening because of the focus on market structure, right? So you know you use the phrase markets are cyclical. There are components of markets that are cyclical, and certainly the theory of markets is as we choose to allocate on the basis of things like modern portfolio theory assumes that they are structurally stagnant with cyclical variation around them, right? So equities return 8%, plus or minus 8% in any given year, right? Um, or 16%, however you want to think about it, right? Um, that's just a fundamental fallacy, right? We're looking at a very short time period in history, basically the Ibbotson studies from 1926 until today, Right, you know, we're, we're we're talking, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of you know ninety six years worth of history. That's nothing, right? That's absolutely nothing, right? And so the idea that we have a picture of what the cyclicality looks like or what the structural trends look like, et cetera, I, to me that just feels so fundamentally false. Um, and the idea that we've gone from over the course of my career less than one percent passive. To today, my estimate is we're somewhere in the neighborhood of 44, 45% passive. That hasn't structurally changed the market in a very meaningful way. Is It just makes no sense whatsoever, right? Like it, 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 it's, you know, and so I, I would just broadly argue that, you know, markets are complex adaptive mechanisms. Complex adaptive mechanisms do not necessarily mean revert. Right? You can create conditions under which extinction events occur. You can create conditions under which there is a dramatic flourishing of a different type of life. Right? So like, you know, we could sit there and argue that at some point, you know, lizards and dinosaurs are going to re, you know, take over the lead relative to mammals. But man, that would seem like a, a very strange cyclical argument to make, right? Um, you know, likewise, we could argue that, you know, eventually the sun will cool and, you know, that's going to create conditions which over a very long, you know, galactic time period suggests that, you know, nothing we do really matters. Well, that's total baloney because it matters to me in my lifetime, right? So I can only live here today and invest in what I see for the next several years. And given the regulatory framework, I don't see any reversal of the passive impact. It's just going to get worse. I see. And, and I mean, for for novices like myself, I mean, why is that? You know, why 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 won't why do you think that it, that's not going to reverse? Because it's actually been built into the regulatory framework, right? So all of the money coming in is coming in through things like four hundred one ks. Four hundred one ks increasingly, if you work for an employer, and you know, you I don't know if you have a four hundred one k because of your your entrepreneur status. Um, but any of your listeners who work for companies, I can almost guarantee you that if they open up their 401k, they will see somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 options available to them, You know, eight of which are going to be target date funds ranging in age from 2025 to 2065. Um, and 
there's going to be a balanced fund that is run with indices and there may be a couple of other things and you might have the option of investing in your own company's stock, but I absolutely guarantee you that there is not going to be significant representation of actively managed products. And so effectively what we've done is we've created a bucket that has no mechanism for money to flow to active managers. It all flows into passive and that's reflected in the flows that we see. So until we change the rules of the game, I just don't see that changing. And I don't think we're going to change the rules of the game because the narrative has been so firmly embraced that passive is harmless, that passive is beneficial to the investment world, right? To the to, uh, customers. That's not true, right? It carries a cost associated with it. Among other things, it prevents the allocation of capital to promising new firms that can emerge in the micro cap space, for example, that might go public to raise small sums of money, et cetera. That has disappeared. Right. And so now, you know, we've reached kind of the millennial um, existential component where it's like, well, none of it matters. We're all just, you know, throwing around, you know, tokens at tokens. Um, that's not true, but that's the way it feels right now. Yeah. And, and, and what's interesting is that, especially in the small micro cap space, I mean, yeah, there's been an active IPO market in the last, you know, year and year. change. Yeah. But, you know, you're starting to see some of these smaller firms go to other markets to to do a public offering, be, just because the it's it's just a better ecosystem for as for being a small micro nano cap company. I mean, we just did an event with uh, you know 70 Canadian small micro nano cap companies. I mean, Israel, Australia, London. I mean, it's just it's just interesting. I mean, do do you feel that? This trend, I'd love to hear whether or not all the advantages and disadvantages in with this current system as it exists right now. And is there any lobbying for any sort of change or is everyone kind of like, all right, yeah, we'll keep it as is for the time being? And I just threw like 10 questions at you. Yeah, no. So, so um, look, there, there is lobbying primarily from the private equity space to improve the prospects of getting companies public, although that tends to operate at the larger scale. Um, the offset to that is you know, the, the overwhelming perception that when I talk about something like a Vanguard Total Market Index, well, that's good enough, right? I, I don't need to do anything beyond that, right? Um, what's not understood are the dynamics of index inclusion, right, that we were just talking about, um, how companies that try to go public below that can stagnate, um, you know, correctly earned, there is a general sense that microcaps are the province of, you know, kind of scuzzy behavior. Um, it's gotten a little better reputation only because crypto is so much worse. Um, you know, so uh, there, there's just not, you know, like Vanguard and BlackRock spend more on lobbying activities than the rest of the industry combined. You, you get what you pay for. Yeah, I hear you there. All right, so I, I want to transition to a few other big topical things that you've, sure. you've talked about recently in, in other interviews and, and on your YouTube channel. You know, um, let's let's go to crypto. You just mentioned that because I, I I find your takes you know quite insightful on that. So I mean, how how do we reconcile where we're at in terms of what's going on in crypto and and how does this affect what's going on in passive investing as well. I mean, you're, you're starting to see some ETFs pop up for, for cryptos and I think the Bitcoin ETF, you know, so I'd love to hear your take on all that. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I you think- got, you, like, got, you got three hours, right? I got three hours, exactly, yeah. So I, I think like the dot-com cycle, there are elements of what's refers to as a positive bubble associated with crypto, right? So we can criticize the dot-com cycle for excesses and fraud and all sorts of bad behavior on the part of both sell-side firms and buy-side firms um, and qu corporate management themselves. Um, but what it did do is it encouraged investment in the communication network that we call the internet, right? And so incredible amounts of fiber were laid, incredible amounts of server farms were built, incredible amounts of switching activity was, was uh, switching capability was put in place that facilitated the growth of the internet broadly um, on a look forward basis, right? So, so failures like global crossing, et cetera, um, level three had at their core, the idea that you would be able to continue to sell those services at the elevated prices of the 1990s. Just to put that in perspective, when in global crossings business plan, right? So global crossing was, was um, one of the firms that was layer, laying global um, uh, uh, 
submerged fiber to connect Asia, the United States, et cetera, right? I mean, if you look back at it in hindsight and you look at the traffic of communications that's exploded, you're like, oh man, that must've been a brilliant business plan. The problem was that they assumed that they'd still be able to sell the product at $800 per megabit. I believe the current pricing is about 37 cents per megabit right now, right? So just an absolute price collapse. The business ended up being small, far smaller than people had anticipated. And because they chose to finance it with debt, ultimately it was transferred into the hands of those who were able to utilize it much more effectively at distressed pricing. Um, I would suggest that there's something similar that's happening with crypto, right? Um, many of the tokens that we're seeing have use cases associated with them, whether it's Chainlink that's focused on the Oracle dynamics or whether it's a Solana that is focused actually on effective transactions at low cost versus Ethereum that has very high cost transactions due to gas fees and the introduction of you know, rule changes that have tried to make it more like Bitcoin. Bitcoin has this claim of a store of value and a fantasy amongst Bitcoin maximalists that it's going to replace the US dollar and as the global reserve currency. Um, you know, that positive bubble aspect, the experience base that is being built, the awareness of smart contracts, the programming capabilities, the networks that are being built, et cetera, have positive um, components associated with them that will be useful when we move to a world of digitally native securities, um, which is distinct from where we are today, right? So I like to hold up, you know, a uh, in these discussions, I like to hold up, you know, like a paper check that I receive because my son has a share of Nintendo, going back to the father example, right, um, where, you know, my mother decided to buy him a share of Nintendo, had it framed, and it's sitting on his wall. And of course, that now means that I'm the shareholder of record. So I receive checks from Nintendo every quarter at 82 cents, right? Um, and I, I like, I cash some of them and some of them I don't even bother because the simple reality is, is that it's more fun to show it than it is. It's like the Zimbabwe trillion dollar, right? Um, right. So the, 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 that existence of those paper securities is actually how the system is still based, right? So any share that you buy has a corresponding certificate that's held at DTCC, the centralized clearing held, if you look at your brokerage statement, it says JTWROS, right? Joint tenants with rights of service, um, as I believe what the S stands for. But it, you, know, you don't actually own something, you have a liability due to you from your brokerage firm, right? Um, and so it's ultimately a credit arrangement that exists. Tokenization starts to fix that and starts to change that and creates the capability to build a much more dynamic system. But that's where it begins to overlap with passive, right? Because the money that goes into your 401k that flows into the Vanguard Total Market Index is not eligible to buy tokenized securities, right? And these tokenized securities typically are not registering as securities. They're, they're you know, declaring themselves as exempt from the Howey test, which is absurd, right? But the SEC is struggling to keep up with the barrage of quote unquote innovation that's occurring in the space, right? Um, we'll eventually get this settled out. There will eventually be um, a transition to tokenized securities. None of the existing use tokens have to make that transition, right? I used the example the other day talking to somebody, you know, that we all think that like, well, Google, you know, was the natural winner, right? Well, AltaVista was certainly the, the lead search engine if I go back to 1999, Almost nobody used Google, right? Um, there was the expectation that InfoSeek and Inktomi were smarter than you know the guys at Google, et cetera, right? What Google figured out was, and you know, again, I would argue that most people don't fully appreciate this, was that they went out and they bought DoubleClick and figured out that they could sell advertising much more effectively than everybody else could on an automated basis, right? So the company we call Google is actually an ad selling business. It's not a search engine, right? Um, most of the rest of them didn't make that transition. They were involved in pop-up ads and various other stuff, right? That the, the deteriorated. So I, I, I look at the crypto space and I say there's really positive aspects to it. And then I just say that just like the dot-com cycle, there's a bunch of people who have attached themselves to it, who fancy themselves technologists, who talk about the technology with some degree of facility, who talk about economic principles, you know, with the certainty that betrays their naivete, 
Um, it, you know, the answer is it's complicated and we are almost certainly going to see lots of Sturm und Drang associated with the space before the opportunity is really shaken out, right? What I'm waiting for in this space is the 2011 type moment where you can buy a Microsoft in you know, single digit PEs once you adjust for the cash sort of dynamic, right? That is coming, it will come. I just think that there's gonna be a lot of pain and sadness between here and there. I mean, do you think that's gonna that that opportunity will be that first like quality company? I mean, I'm, full disclosure, I say that without having done any kind of research. But let's say, for instance, that first quality, you know, revenue generate actual revenue generating business that does an SEO, you know, like uh, is is it that the, the, that the just quick, doesn't understand? Yeah. So I mean, the quick difference is that you know the dot com names were going through the process of underwriting they were going through the process of becoming regulated securities if i actually look at the number of names that succeeded from that it's it's very low you know in terms of absolute quantity right um the pricing of if it, you know going back to the chuck royce example of treating securities as options right when you're in these positive bubbles every security has to have priced into it, the possibility that it could be the successful security, right? So Red Hat had to be priced like it could replace Microsoft. Microsoft had to be priced as if it could be the winner, right? Cisco had to be priced as if it was truly the picks and shovels for XYZ. Ironically, once the winners begin to emerge, that aggregate option value then begins to collapse. And, you know, effectively, once you've decided, okay, here's the absolute size of the market, here's the winner's the losers go away and paradoxically the winner's valuation deflates because you realize, Hey, wait a second. It wasn't actually that big of an opportunity. It was just the market was pricing in all of this option component associated with it that led people to make outrageous expectations, you know, claims for the space. Right. Um, I think that's very much the dynamic of, of crypto. Like we're just not yet at the point that people are like, okay, it's a big deal, but it's not that big of a deal. Right. Yeah, I mean, the, the reason I, I brought up that question, and because the point that you brought up about the tokenization of securities, I mean, that that's something I've been thinking about quite a bit, especially in, when you think about small micro nano caps, you know, and the, the, just when it comes to transparency and, um, you know, being able to look on the blockchain to see who owns it and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's, that's revolutionary stuff, especially in a space that, you know, I mean, some of the biggest fund managers in the world that, you know, uh, run funds where they can only really allocate to large mega caps, you know, they have their PA and they're playing around in, in, in our space because they just love the game of it, you know? And yeah. so that it's, it's just an interesting uh, exercise I think about quite often. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. Um, you know, I, I think those dynamics of transparency, again, like just to go back to it, until Vanguard receives clearance to start buying these things, until tokenized securities are included in the crisp indices, which are the indices that, that Vanguard references for the Vanguard total market index. I don't know where the capital comes from. Nope, I hear you. All right, so switching topic, because I, I, I only got you for a set amount of time. So yep. real quick, um, uh, do you want to talk China? I mean, do, do you want to get into it or could we? Sure, why we, not? Sure. sure. All right, so I mean, your take. I mean, uh, you know, with everything that's been going on, um, I mean, with uh, what was it, uh, the Evergrande situation? I mean, how, how does this factor into some of the market structure, market dynamics that you're seeing right now? Well, so look, I, I, I'm very bearish on China. I think that um, the core issue associated with China is, is two dynamics. One is, is that their growth trajectory is very easily explained in, by resource reallocation, right? So if I go back and I look at Nixon opening up China, you basically started creating the conditions under which people could be taken out of cave villages and put to work somewhat productively starting in 1990 when we opened up trade with China and they effectively aggressively responded against NAFTA by devaluing their currency by about 60%, um, making them super competitive on the global stage. They became the manufacturing center of the world. They became the export center of the world. You've seen China rise quite significantly, but now it's running into all the problems that you could have predicted had you looked at their demographics, right? So they've passed what's called the Louisian turning point, which is 
um, tied to the availability of labor to transit, make that transition, right? So wages have risen dramatically. China is no longer low cost in most regions. A lot of the lower lower level manufacturing has transitioned to places like Vietnam or, or um, Bangladesh or India. Um, so you're, you're already seeing the world start to leave China behind in terms of its manufacturing infrastructure. The scale of China still remains really significant. Uh, the second issue, though, is, is that China hopes to transition or people have hoped that China would transition to an internal consumption model. And that's where their demographics play a role that people broadly don't fully appreciate, which is when your population is falling in the magnitude and style that China's population is falling, what's referred to as the pantry effect, right? Basically, the number of households is falling enough that you can't create a growing market, even if incomes are rising. Right. So if you if you think about the simple dynamics of household formation, right, I know you notice you have bookshelves and books and pictures behind you. Right. When you moved into your apartment, you needed to buy bookshelves and picture frames and you needed to stock your refrigerator with food, et cetera. When you lived with your parents, yes, you consume food, but you didn't have that same inventory type dynamic. You need to build up the capital in advance. Right. So China is facing that same dynamic, except it's magnified by two characteristics. One is that the degree to which it has fallen can only be related to the experiences that we've seen in depopulating areas in the United States, things like you know, a Nebraska farm town, right? Where the corporatization of farms has meant a dramatic reduction in the quantity of labor, the dramatic reduction in the quantity of small individual farmers. And as a result, you have negative population pressures in these areas. If you notice what happens there, the consumption falls, the main street shuts down, the businesses begin to consolidate into warehouse operations like Walmart, et cetera, right? It's a hugely negative dynamic that is that has to play out in China because we're seeing the same sort of dynamics. Most people don't fully understand the magnitude of what has already transpired. China's graduating high school classes are 50% smaller than they were 25 years ago, 50% smaller. China last year had births that were only about 3 million more than the United States, despite the fact that their population is almost five times or about four and a half times that of the United States, right? I mean, just tiny, tiny population growth that reflects the fact that it has become so unattractive to raise children in China, right? You, You can't recover from that. And so what China is engaged in right now is basically very similar to what the Germans were trying to do in the 1920s, 1930s under Hitler's idea of Lebensraum, right? So living space or freedom to live. Um, They were effectively trying to, you know, they're, they're looking for ways to capture resources. They're looking for ways to create a breakout strategy before the whole thing collapses. Wow. I mean, what's, as a quick follow-up to that, I mean, what's is there a time frame in which they they need to get all this done, or or what what's the how, how do they execute something so huge? I don't think I, they do. I, I don't think they do, and I think that's the second part of the argument, right? Which is, yeah. you know, if you think about what a dictatorship is or an authoritarian government, it's effectively a way of bringing productivity to the public sector. Right. Instead of having a cacophony of voices saying, oh, we should do this or no, we should do this, or et cetera, et cetera. It becomes what one person says we should do. And if you don't do it, they cut your head off. Right. Um, that's what Xi has become. He has become that central figure. Now, that can feel like productivity. Right. That can feel like huge gains because you're taking the resources of the state and you're focusing it on imperial type achievements, right? Let's build a new airport, let's build new hospitals, let's build you know, new trains, et cetera. We can absolutely do that. But it's fundamentally malinvestment and it creates tremendous fragility because if that leader makes a mistake, well, the criticism of price in the marketplace or of occupancy in commercial real estate operations or of bankruptcy, et cetera, those signals don't reach the decider. Right? That's what a market-based system is designed to do. The second dynamic is as those crackdowns become more intense and effectively as that leader finds himself increasingly under pressure from underperformance in the system, it takes an authoritarian bent where the risks to that individual leader become the dominant feature of the police state. And you're seeing that absolutely emerge in China. Now, what that means is, is that 
part of your productivity, the idea that I'm going to make scientific progress now has to be devoted to looking over my shoulder to see who's going to report me to the great leader, right? And that is effectively a parasitic load similar to an air conditioner in a car that lowers the fuel efficiency. So even if the Chinese were more talented and more capable than we are, that parasitic load is negative to the outcomes. By the way, we're doing our best to create our own version of that with the dynamics of wokeism, right? So everybody is terrified that they're going to get called out for speaking the truth. That parasitic load lowers our aggregate productivity and reduces the prospects of future growth. All right. So I wanted to, I wish we had like three more hours to go through all this, but you know, one day, one day we'll, we'll have, we'll have that, that time. But I wanted to get into a couple of questions that were sent in from Twitter that uh, I, I put out that I was interviewing you uh, this morning. Oh. So um, first question in uh, that I got from at Timothy Soba, uh, Timothy S-O-B-A. Um, uh, question is, how should one incorporate long volatility into their portfolio, i.e., what should the portfolio percentage be in, in SVOL? Um, okay, so, so first of all, SVOL is short volatility, not long volatility. Um, and secondly, um, so, so SVOL very quickly is a recreation of a product um, that exploded spectacularly on February 5th, 2018, right? It's the XIV or SVXY inverse VIX ETFs um, were something that I, I was known for betting against, having a correct prediction around them, making some money off of it. Um, what we've done with SFAL is we've actually recreated that style of product. We've reduced the leverage by 75%. So it's 25% leverage. And then the second thing that we've done is we've actually bought um, call options against a spike in volatility, turning it into what's referred to as a cap to variance trade. Um, that product has really attractive carry and income earning characteristics as it, the market is structured today where volatility is very elevated versus the realized levels of volatility, right? Um, in terms of the allocation of a portfolio to SFAL, I rarely recommend that anyone is going to do more than 10% or 15% unless it's a core underlying exposure. Um, it is a great replacement for income strategies like high dividend yielding stocks or even credit type vehicles, um, particularly investment grade, et cetera. It does have more risk. It does have higher volatility than those. And so, you know, you should scale it appropriately. Um, one of the things people can do is if you go to our website at simplify.us and just emphasize that simplify.us, not simplify.com, um, you can sign up for our advisor perspectives. Um, within our advisor perspectives, we'll, we are beginning to publish model portfolios that incorporate kind of our best thinking around it. I'm actually introducing a multi-strat next year um, that will incorporate elements of portfolio design. And in that portfolio, just to give a hard answer to this, the SVOL allocation is about 10%. Got it. All right. So next question came in from at Ian Bookman. Uh, the question is, if the market index is being pushed up by increasing indexation, why do we observe such disparity in the movement of its component companies? Conversely, if there were dramatic uniformity among Fangma and others' returns, what would that tell you? Um, okay, so the, the question that they're asking is the dispersion dynamics within the indices themselves. And I just want to emphasize that um, there are two separate components, right? So you can think of the passive as effectively the tide coming in, right? So it is lifting everything as it goes through, right? Now, it's, it's not that all boats float equally, right? And it's really not um, necessarily a pure lift. There are also, if maybe instead you think about it as the tide and swimmers, there's some fast swimmers, there's some slow swimmers, there's some swimmers who are swimming in the wrong direction, right? And so you're going to see what looks like dispersion and chaos but underneath everything has that same positive vector. So in particular, if I look at the smaller names, and this just goes back to the index construction, and I think about something like the S&P 500, there's 505 names in the S&P 500, confusingly now. Um, of those, the top 10 or 50, right, have this characteristic where their liquidity is far less than their market cap. And there's a good academic paper that came out written by Bouchard 
just in the last couple of months, it's looking at the micro uh, structure of the inelastic market hypothesis of Gabay and Koijin um, that was released in 2020. This is academic papers that are beginning to support my theories. Um, that paper highlights what he refers to as an M factor, right? Which is this excess of um, buying pressure that's coming from the index versus the liquidity that actually exists. If I look at that subset of stocks, they're doing extraordinarily well, right? It's basically the FANG type stuff. Um, if I look at everything else, it has a preponderance in some ways of active managers being forced to redeem, right? If you find the smallest name in the S&P 500, guess what? It doesn't get a lot of buying pressure from Vanguard. It's already in the S&P. It already, you know, it's probably worked its way down, right? Companies don't come into the S&P from the very bottom. They get put in somewhere on the middle. If it's the last stock, what is actually happening is, is that the holders of it have chosen to buy it. They've said, I firmly believe in XYZ management team. Nobody else understands what's going on. Certainly not those idiots at Vanguard, right? But they're getting fired because they've underperformed. And so they have to sell that stock. And so the risk is that that stock actually drops out of the S&P 500 with the next inclusion. And that's catastrophic, right? And then everybody loses in that process. So the dispersion, like I just want to emphasize, you know, I've become good friends with Robin Wigglesworth of the FT, but he wrote a piece, I want to say it was earlier this year, called A Theory of Everything for, for the Financial Times, right? And it basically um, highlighted my, my theories and said, you know, well, they try to say everything is a function of this. That was never the case. I don't think it has, it explains everything, but what it does do is, is it explains the tides, right? Like the moon transiting over the earth explains tidal action. Does it explain rogue waves? No, absolutely not. Right? Are rogue waves easier to get? Are, are storm surges easier to get at high tides? 100%. So you'd be an idiot if you weren't following it. Very good. All right. So before I let you go to here today, I, my favorite question to ask everyone, one of my guests on here, um, what, what, what is an investing experience that you would say you learned the most from in your career? Oh, God. Um, so it's always your losers rather than your winners. Always. Um, for me in 2008, um, I was an investor in a small copper company and um, I actually owned the credit of this small company, copper company. This is a, a startup. And um, I realized that the quality of the operations, the data that I had presented as an insider coming in as an accredited investor, the consultant had improperly done the math on the um, ability to extract copper from the mined ore, right? And so just in very particular details, the soil was a talc soil. So it was a um, basic soil. The way that you uh, get copper out of the soil is you add acid to it and then it leaches out of the system. So if you combine an acid and a base, it neutralizes. Right, creating it's effectively like having, um, you know, talcum powder uh, when you have an irritation. Right, you know, it's a soothing phenomenon, sort of thing. Right, um, and so you were never going to end up getting the recoveries that they had actually modeled in this. And you know, that was one of these things where I sat there and I looked at this. And I'm like, I can't believe this. Very simple errors by a consultant, by a management team you know, led to the projections and the, and the prospects of this thing actually working being functionally zero, right? Um, it, you know, it, it's just a point that like, it's usually the simplest stuff that you overlook when you make these calculations. So, um, so that, and that was complete wipeout, you know, absolute loss of everything. And uh, a lesson that I will never forget that sometimes management doesn't know what the hell it's talking about either. Sometimes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> sometimes, I, I mean, I don't want to take everything away. Sometimes course, they're yeah. very good. Right. Yeah, no, and, no, no doubt. But that's, that's the other component that I would just point out, which is that opened up for me, despite my experience in small caps and everything else that like, man, there's so many things that are moving, you know, when you're trying to run an institutional grade portfolio yep. to miss that type of, of insight you know, that's just, it's an, it's an indication that I was not adding as much value as I thought on single stock selection. Mm, gotcha. All right. So I lied. I said that was my last question. This is my last question. So for, for folks that 
you know, I, I'd love to get what what advice you would have for new investors or just folks that are just kind of trying to understand what the heck is going on going into 2022. You know, what what would you what what would be your your sage advice having been, you know, a studier of the markets, market dynamics and having been in the industry now for almost 30 plus years, you know. Yeah. yeah. Not not not, Sorry, not quite not, 30, not quite 30. Don't age me out too fast, but um <laughs> um so, so a couple of things. Um, one of which that I would just emphasize is is how you started this, right? This is craziness. This is not a normal market. This is not the environment that you should be taking life lessons from, other than you know pausing, reflecting, saying how do you plan to invest afterwards, and in the meantime, understand that you're effectively anteing up to keep playing to to stay in the game, right? These these are not the hands you want to bet aggressively on. Um, those will come. Right. Um, and, you know, I was just on a, a, a Twitter spaces with George Noble and George highlights something that I like to emphasize for people, which is cash represents optionality. Right. The current mantra is cash is trash. Right. And so who, who, who would ever hold cash? Well, that's true if you never think that there's going to be a buying opportunity that is significantly greater than today. I, I, if you can be patient Right. If you have that capacity, and I think it's underappreciated the benefit that small investors have who aren't running funds because you have a job and therefore you have cash flow coming in that allows you to continually refresh your cash basis. Right. That dynamic creates a real opportunity for the small investor that doesn't exist for the much larger investor on an institutional basis. And if, if you can approach that with the benefit of the patience that that gives you, I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities going forward, but this is not the environment in which you want to be making the huge swinging bets. That's a great place to end it. Michael, where can our audience go and find more information on Simplify and also to follow you on social media? Uh, so Simplify is www.simplify.us. You can also follow us on Twitter. Um, I believe it's at Simplify. Um, I am confusingly at ProfPlum99 and my avatar. Uh, it's a long story. I've explained it elsewhere, but um, I never expected to be Twitter famous so, or Twitter influencer or whatever you call it. Um, so, you know, have sympathy for that dynamic. But um, the, so at ProfPlum99 and from there you can find Medium and um, ultimately I'm going to be launching a website in the next year that's going to include some of the research and writings and all that sort of stuff. So keep, keep your eyes peeled for that. Very cool. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. I really do appreciate it. Good luck. Stay safe. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. And uh, I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Same to you, Bobby. Take care. Thank you. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast podcast.